0: Uh, kids, you know we do this. Before we jump into the sermon, we always do, uh, we always want to talk to our young ones, give our young ones a heads up of what the scripture reading is going to be about and uh, what the, really what the message is going to be about, okay? Uh, And you can find a little summary of this in the back of your bulletin. If you go to the back, there are these helps for our kids uh, for the service, after the service, to go home throughout the week. So, kids, let me have your attention for just a moment. Let me ask you, Y'all, uh, y- okay, you know, when your parents, you know when your parents come to you and they ask you, hey, do you want some more water? Or they come up to you like, hey, do you need another blanket? Or they come up to you like, hey, do you need to go to the bathroom before we go, before we get in the car? Uh, and, you're, and, and, so, and this is how you answer sometimes, you know, to all those questions, sometimes you're like, no, 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 I'm good. I'm good. Okay, that right there, like that response right there of like, hey, do you need more water? No, 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 I'm good. Uh, hey, do you need another blanket? like, no, 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 I'm good. That right there, that response, that feeling— that is contentment. That's what we mean when we say, like, that's contentment. Contentment is this thing where you're like, no, I'm all good. I'm good. Things are good. Now, here's the big question. The big question today is, like, what gives you that contentment? Like, in life, because that's, like, what Christians really, really want in this life, is we want this thing where, no, I'm all good. What gives you that contentment? Because here's what I'm going to tell you. It's not it, it's not sometimes what we think it is, as in it's not always ice cream. Like I just need some ice cream right now and then I'll be happy. Uh, I need some Whataburger and then I'll be okay. Uh, like the no homework thing, some of my kids believe that if they didn't have any homework, everything would be okay. That's not true, that's not true. That's not true. Uh, like one more vacation, if I could just go to Disney World, everything would be great, everything, I'd be all good. That's actually not true. And I'm going to show you this. Here's a, here's how I want to show you this. Uh, I'm going to show you uh, what real contentment looks like. I'm going to invite <clears throat> Christopher Lungard up on stage with me. Um, y'all might know Christopher. This is this is his Mom Katie Lungard, and this is Christopher, A.K.A. Kit. Okay. Let's see if this. Let's see if. Uh, let's see what's going to happen here. Hey, Christopher. Here. Can I can I take you, in? Will you come to? No. Can I have you? Can you come to me? Okay, so I've got Christopher now. You okay with this? Uh, imagine he nailed it. We talked about this before. Uh, imagine I am the world, and Katie is Jesus. And y'all are Kit. OK? That's what contentment looks like. Like that's the contentment that we are going for. is like, what, what, it, what does Kit know? He, he knows that me, the world, is not going to give him like what, he re- what does he really, really want. like What's going to make it all okay? Well, his mom. Mom will make it okay. Because mom's the one who feeds me. Mom's the one who gets me dressed. Mom's the one who takes me where I need to go. Mom is the one who cares for me. Mom is the one who's always going to protect me. Mom is the one who loves me no matter what. That is a picture of us with Jesus. And that is... Is Christian contentment. That is the thing, like knowing Jesus, having Jesus, the one, your Lord and Savior, your God who came down, loves you so much that he lived for you and he died for you to save you from everything bad. So that right now, when things look bad, you know that with Jesus, this is not the end of the story, that with Jesus, you know everything is going to be all good. Thank you so much, Kit. We did. We, we, we talked about that over the phone. He was all on board. Um, okay. So uh, here's what we're going to do. We're in 1 Corinthians this morning. Uh, this, is a, this is a super, super applicable letter that Paul is writing to the church in Corinth. There's all this division in Corinth, like problem after problem after problem. So he is just like, let's just, you know what? Let's just go through and let's talk about this. Then let's talk about this. You guys have got problems with this. Let's talk about this. So uh, what we're in today is we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We're not going to read the whole, the whole chapter. It would be super great if we did. We don't have—but here's why we don't have to. Here's why We're not, we're not skipping over anything hard. Uh, if you've been here more than a week, you know we just don't do that here. We just don't skip over the, the hard, awkward, hard stuff. Uh, but, but there's a flow and a structure to this passage that's going to enable us to see the framework of it so you can go home and you can read it and follow along uh, through the whole thing. The first 16 verses— And the last 16 verses of this chapter, they parallel each other. And then there's this middle section, these eight verses, that bring it all together and kind of make sense of what comes before and what comes after. This is all about marriage, singleness, and sex, and the eight verses in the middle that bring it all together to make one point about all of it. So Paul—and let me say this, just as a qualifier— Paul is not exhaustive here about any of these things, neither will we be exhaustive. You just, you, you, please, please know that. You're gonna leave here saying, man, he really didn't address this. We really didn't talk about that. I know, I know. Um, but we are addressing his main point here. So with that, please stand for the reading of God's word. These are selections from 1 Corinthians chapter seven. Now, concerning the matters about which you wrote Quote, this is is what they have written to Paul. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. End quote. Okay. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body the wife does. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind, one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it's better to marry than to burn with passion. Only, Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who who was called in the Lord is a bondservant, is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried There was a there was a term in the Roman around the there was a term around the Roman Empire, everyone knew about it, everyone heard about it. It's called uh, to Corinthianize, uh, and it just meant to live a wildly promiscuous lifestyle. And, and remember, just remember here that the Corinthian Church started with just as many just as many Gentile Greek pagans as it did with Jews. There's just as many Greek pagans in this in this new thing as there are Jews that have come over from the synagogue. Uh, so it's not a surprise to us that the Corinthian culture has made its way into the Corinthian church. It's also not a surprise that there is a group, that there is a group within this church that is only ever known the Corinthian way. This is all, it's all—it's what they grew up with. It's all they know. So engulfed in their worldly, pagan understanding of sexuality, and now, now what they what they hear is this call to total commitment, thought, word, and deed to Jesus, Lord and Savior. That they're hearing this now. They conclude, okay, it is just better not to have sex at all. So one group coming out of this culture thinks this is this is what we this is what we saw Paul dealing with last time in chapter six. Uh, One group is coming out of this culture thinking, hey, Jesus has saved us by grace. It's all by grace. Nothing we do really counts for anything. We can't save ourselves, so nothing, nothing that we do really matters. So we can live however we want. Nothing really needs to change, not even with our sexuality. That's one group. And then there's this other group now that Paul is addressing. In the church, they're going to the opposite extreme, and they're challenging Paul with, this, with this, this challenge of, hey, it, right, this is right, right? Like, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. So there's this big division in the church over this too. Uh, this, other, uh, this other view that has come into the Corinthian church that has probably really been born in the church, it's not, it's not an—we oh, don't want to say it's an overreaction, as if, the, you know, you're on to something. Ah, you're just taking it a little too far. No, Paul says that this view is actually just as perverted. It's just as big and dangerous of an error as this libertine view. Uh, If you're, this view that says like, if you're going to be a Christian, then the right thing to do is to be single. The right thing to do is to be celibate. If you're not married, don't get married. This is what they're saying. And if you are married, you should probably see if you can get out of that marriage so you can be celibate. And if you can't get out of that marriage, well, then you should be celibate in your marriage. I was reminded of a, a 12th century uh, theologian, Peter Abelard, uh, who once wrote, wish he had read 1 Corinthians 7, but he once wrote during his very influential ministry, he said, the Holy Spirit leaves the room when a married couple has sex, even if they do it without passion to make new virgins for the kingdom of heaven that is so off, so wrong. But it's this, it's this thought that sex is a problem for everyone. It's a problem for singles. It's a problem for marrieds. Uh, and not just practically, we're talking spiritually. It's just, it's just a problem. And it's this view that, 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 this, that this act is uh, it's defiling. It's dirty. It's, it's shameful. It's to be avoided. Such things should not be brought up in public conversations, not even in a sermon on, uh, on a Sunday. We don't talk about such things. And Paul's immediate response to this egregious error is to correct them, saying, Listen, because of the temptation to sexual immorality, if you so desire, you should get married. And you should enjoy this thing as God designed sex to be enjoyed by one man and one woman in marriage. Which, right here, that's really clear right here. That this is the only context in which that is to be enjoyed because it's not dirty, it's not shameful. And I I really, I'm sincerely intending to be delicate here. This is crucial. Paul adds, and when you marry, when you get married, you don't deny yourselves sex as if sex was not meant to be enjoyed. Because one of the God intended purposes of sex is for husband and wife to have fun. Like that, that that is one of the purposes. And please hear me say this: Paul is. What is he not saying? He is not saying that sex will always be the best, always, every time. That's not what. That's not what he's saying. He's saying he understands the history and he understands the experience of these new Christians, what they are coming out of in this city, and they are now attempting to rectify their past abuses with efforts that they don't realize are just as abusive and just as dangerous. And what we don't want to do here is reduce everything Paul or the Bible has to say about sex and marriage here as if the only purposes of sex were to, you know, have fun. Uh, it's, it's, not, it's not just about pleasure. But that is one of the God-designed purposes for it. Another purpose for it, we know this one, another purpose for it is procreation. But that's not, that's not what Paul's talking about here. But that we know from other parts of Scripture, that's definitely one of the purposes for it. Another God-designed God purpose for sex that he does intimate here is, is that it is for intimate communication between husband and wife. Verse 4, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband not, does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. As in what this communicates when they come together is, is listen, I am not my own. I belong to you, and I belong exclusively to you. I mean, that's the height of intimate communication between husband and wife, each saying it to the other. And it, this also gets at another uh, God-designed purpose for sex. It's for the sealing of the marriage covenant. Again, truly don't mean to be indelicate here, but this is helpful, as in sex literally seals the deal. As in marriage is a covenant, which means it is a legal relationship. Marriage is not just a relationship. It is a legal relationship that is recognized by God. And the covenant of marriage is made legal by this act. It is sealed on the wedding night, so you think about covenants between nations. This is not how they sealed their covenants, but they they would get together covenants covenants. Uh, nations would get together. You know, kings would get together, make deals. And the way they would seal their covenants is usually through a ritual sacrifice of an animal. You know, and uh, and that would seal their deal. Um, and then what they would do is they would regularly renew their covenants with each other. You know, if the little king dies and his son becomes the next little king, the big king goes, that little king says, hey, let's renew this deal you and me, you and your dad and I had, okay? Let's renew our covenant. Let's stay friends. Let's stay, let's stay allies. That, that, covenants were regularly renewed for all kinds of reasons. And in God's brilliance uh, and his goodness, uh, it's the same with the marriage covenant. And the way you renew the marriage covenant is the same way you seal the marriage covenant. We want to run to other passages like Genesis 2, Adam and Eve, Song and so- Song of Songs. We do uh, another time, another time. But Paul is getting at that here too, that that this thing that each each spouse has authority over the other's body in the sense of this is a legal bond in union uh, happening in marriage. Doesn't mean you get to abuse the other one. Doesn't mean you get to use the other one. It's, it's the opposite. It's you're responsible for serving the other one, loving the other one. The one you're bound to. Um, and so verse 5, don't deprive one another except for an agreed upon time, and that for a short time, in order to prayerfully reflect on the biblical realities of marriage. And then you come together again to renew your renew your marital love physically, the marital love you once vowed verbally. Now, all that oh it's so great. Love all that. And Paul is also very careful to say that you cannot reduce marriage to sex. And you cannot reduce marriage to this thing that will always make you happy. Marriage, this is is not a comment on my marriage. This is Paul commenting on marriage. Marriage will not fulfill you. It will cost you. Verse 32, he goes, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. He doesn't say worldly things there in the sense of like bad things, like, like uh, sinful things. It just means like instead of this vertical relationship to God, it's this horizontal relationship about this other person. Or, you know, things on this earth, how to please his wife and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I've had the incredible honor uh, of officiating uh, 23 weddings. And that is, that's got to be a college minister and got to uh, marry a lot of our college students. Many are here. If you've ever been to one of those weddings, you know they can be a bit abrasive. In the sense of brutally honest, Uh, the bride and groom hear things like, Your marriage will be broken before the end of tonight. Uh, Get used to disappointment. Uh, Neither of you is perfect. You can either join the Strugglers Club or the Liars Club when you get married. And that's not me. That's wonderful uh, psychologist John Cox in Mississippi. And John is right. And I'm right. And it's because Paul is right. I, I've also had the privilege of, of, of attending a lot of beautiful, beautiful weddings. And uh, at some of them, I've heard enough of the rom-com, sappy, sentimental lie that marriage is made out to be. This happily ever after stuff. By way too many preachers who know better. As in Paul, what Paul is saying here is, listen, marriage— is wonderful. And it comes with a great cost. It will be a sacrifice. And then he goes on to say, and marriage is not the only way to live. There is singleness. Verse seven, Paul says, now marriage is great, also hard. And I wish that all were as I myself am. And he means single. Paul was single. And it's very, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, it's very, 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 very likely that Paul was once married because he was on the Sanhedrin. He tells us he was on the Sanhedrin, and to be on the Sanhedrin, you had to be married. Uh, The Sanhedrin was the Jewish ruling council, uh, and before he became a Christian, he was an up-and-coming star amongst the Pharisees uh, who served on the Sanhedrin, which most likely means at this point that either... There are really two possibilities: either his wife has divorced him, has left him since he has become a Christian, or because he references that that might happen in this passage, or, or she's died. And we don't know, but it does mean that everything Paul is speaking to here is personal for him. Some are single by choice; some are single by divorce. Some are single by widowhood. Some Christians who struggle with same-sex attraction choose not to pursue those desires, and they marry someone of the opposite sex, and they have a family. Some Christians who struggle with same-sex attraction choose not to pursue those desires and choose singleness, offering their celibacy to Christ as a celebration of their love for Christ. But people in the world and people in the church have created just as much chaos around singleness as they have around sex and marriage. The error, there's this error, egregious error that singleness means you're just not quite there yet. She's not quite there yet. There have been churches led by terrible leaders whose mission and purpose uh, surrounded the idea that your job was to get married and to have babies. And the husband would lead the wife and the wife would submit and stay in the home. There is uh, uh, there's even the idea in some churches that you need to be married to be a whole person. That the man is one part of the image of God and the woman is the other part of the image of God. And together, they come together and together in their marriage, they form the image of God That is utter nonsense and totally unbiblical. Man is the image of God, and woman is the image of God. Verse 7, Paul says, I wish that all were as I myself am, single, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another, Singleness is not only not a bad thing, it's also not just this thing. Singleness is a gift from God. Now, to many in the church, that sounds like a gift you want to get back. Uh, Years ago, I'm not going to name names here, I knew this kid, he was turning six, Uh, and there was this big family dinner, and my brother uh, and his wife came. Uh, at that time, they were, they were still dating. This kid's opening his gift, and Daisy uh, surprises all of us with this, with this really big gift. that we, we had no idea she was bringing this huge, big gift wrap box. And this kid that I know adored Daisy, just adored Daisy. This, eye, this kid's eyes get huge at this thing. Just can't believe it tears the thing open, and it is this really, really cool three-wheeler racer. And we're all like, whoa! And this kid picks this thing up and says, I didn't ask for this. I don't want this. And he threw it on the ground. Uh, An incredible, an incredible, but unexpected, unrequested gift from someone he adored and loved. Uh, so he did, but he didn't want it. Okay So what we want to say is just like marriage, just like marriage is not a straitjacket uh, and marriage is not happily ever after. So singleness also does not mean a self-centered life of freedom to do whatever you want whenever you want. And also, uh, this, this life of singleness is also not a life of loneliness. It is a gift. And the word Paul uses here for gift, it's the same word for gift he uses in chapter 12. This is pointed out to me by uh, Paige Benton Brown, a uh, wonderful biblical scholar. Um, he, he, it's the same word in chapter 12, uh, describing the, sp- we're going to get there, describing the spiritual gifts, c- like, like communi- you know, those spiritual gifts you think of, communicating truth, you know, gifts of administration, leadership, all that stuff, we'll come to that. But, but what he says there is, it's helpful to note, note it here, because he says there, and this is this is pretty common knowledge when it comes to gifts, but he's really explicit there. He says, to each is given, with each, with each gift, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Okay, so here's Paul, and he's already said, to each is given one gift, one gift or another, as in like the gift of singleness or the gift of marriage. Both are gifts. And one question is, that, well, how do you know if you have the gift of, of singleness? Well, he says, to each is given. That's what we've been talking about. It's given by God Himself, one. Two, teach is given the manifestation of the Spirit. So if singleness is a gift of God, then what makes it a gift is that the single life looks like the Spirit of Jesus Christ. As in, just like a married life is supposed to reflect and image and show the the life of Christ, so is the single life. So is the life of singleness. Jesus was single all of his life. And he was not alone in life. He had incredible friendships, the deepest relationships, and his life was full of joy. And it was full of connectedness. And it was full of fulfillment. And it was full of passion. And it was full of committed relationships. And third here, to each is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good. Singleness like marriage, is also designed to benefit others. The world says the single life is do what you want when you want and answer to no, and the Bible says your gift of singleness is actually not for you. It's for others. Uh, you, you're, it's not a life dedicated to self-improvement. It's a life dedicated to loving Jesus and loving others. It allows you to, the life of singleness allows you to live a maritally, distraction-free life. And there is just real reality to that. As in, listen, you may look at your single friends and think, you know, how do you do it? You're so strong. And your single friends are guaranteed we are looking at you and saying, how do you do it? Like, you're really strong. Um, uh, In this context, too, uh, the, the, the merrily distraction-free life with more freedom to give yourself to Jesus and others in this context, in the, like what Paul is talking about right here, singleness is such an obvious gift to the church, for others in the church, because of the hyper-sexualized, sex-obsessed culture that they lived in and that we still live in today. As in, singles are a light in a dark world that shine that reality on us that sex does not define life, and we have been so fooled otherwise. Sex does not define happiness. It doesn't, and the gift of singleness exposes there is passionate, fulfilling, exhilarating life apart from sex, apart from marriage. Just as much as marriage, singleness is a gift to the church. Here's the big so what. Because, you know, Paul seems like he's just almost just jumping from one thing to the next. Well, what you, okay, but here's the big point, the so what for all of us here. How does Paul bring all of this together? His big point is that he wants all of us, each of us, to be content. This is all about contentment. Be As in, be content in marriage. Be content in singleness. The, those middle eight verses that talk about circumcision— what does that have to do with any of this? It's got everything to do with this. As in, uh, it's about learning contentment in all of life's circumstances. Verse seventeen: Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. He tells Gentiles, they don't have to listen. Gentiles, you guys don't have to become ethnic Jews and get circumcised when you when you convert to Christianity. And, and, and then he tells, and, and he tells Jews like, and you don't have to like, you don't have to go out of your way to become non-ethnic Jews in order to be Christians. You can still be ethnic Jews. He tells freemen to stay free. He tells bond servants that if they can get free, if they can get out of their slavery, great. If not, it is more than okay if you can't gain your freedom because you already have true, ultimate, everlasting freedom in Christ that can never be taken away, and it's true right now. So in addition to the issues of sex and marriage and singleness, Paul, in these middle eight verses, he uses these other two huge barriers to unity at that time and that day. Religious barrier, the circumcision, and the slavery, this, this social barrier. And he uses these, he adds it on to marriage and singleness and sex. He adds it on to say, you don't have to change your circumstances to have contentment in this life. God may call—he's not, he's not saying— God may call you out of certain circumstances, your current job. He may call you out of singleness into marriage. Loved ones, he may call you out of marriage into singleness. Like, you, 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 some of this is beyond you. You just don't know. But he's saying, regardless of your circumstances, regardless of your circumstances, you can have contentment. Because, verse 19, neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God— what you really want to notice there, he doesn't say, hey, listen, circumcision is great. And uncircumcision is, that's also just, that's great. Everyone is just great. And so just be happy being great. Like Jews are beautiful. Gentiles are beautiful. Everybody's just awesome. He said, no, he's saying, listen, your ethnicity, it counts for nothing compared to the ultimate purpose of your life which is to live for Jesus, who saved you. Says, circumcision doesn't count for anything. Uncircumcision doesn't count anything. But keeping the commandments of God. And it, here's this. Here's this part where we hear that keep the commandments of God, and we're like, oh. I keep the commandments of God. Okay. We and and, and we we want to hear stuff like hey, just tell me, tell me to love Jesus. Tell me to love others. Okay, and then at the same time, people are always coming to other certain people and saying, we want application. Like, come on, tell me what to do like right now, today. And like, okay, as in like, stop with all this pie in the sky stuff, love Jesus. What does that mean? Great, it's simple. It's what Jesus told us. Gospel of John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. That's what living for Jesus looks like. Living for Jesus, that is one secret to contentment. There's another one here. It's in you don't just live for Jesus. uh, You live with Jesus. Verse 24. In whatever condition each was called there, let him remain with God. Paul is saying outward circumstances loved ones, ultimately, they really don't matter. It's your relationship to Jesus, and nothing else compares, certainly not in the next life, and not in this life. Nothing compares to your relationship with Jesus. There was a way, so what what this is, this is ringing alarm bells, not for us, but it is for the Corinthians uh, there in first century ancient Near East, because there was a way for ancient Near Eastern pagan slaves, the Greek pagan slaves, there was a way for them to buy their freedom, there were sometimes relationships where the master was a generous master and over over a number of years would actually pay the slave and let them have their freedom after a certain number of years. It made them look good to the rest of society. In many circumstances too, awful slave owners, awful masters who, um, who, who weren't not that helpful, but there was a way, there was a way for slaves to buy their freedom. They could work an additional job it's awful. In addition to they've sold themselves into slavery or they've been or they've been captured in war or they've been born into it. There's a way for them to buy their slavery that they just have to do work on top of the work they do for their current master. And what they would do is after, after you know, uh, finishing work all day here, they'd go to work at night, or they'd get some time during the day, they'd, they'd make some money on the side. And of course, a percentage of that had to go to the master. The master was entitled to it if he wanted a percentage of it. But whatever was left over, the Greek pagan slave would take that to the temple, the nearby temple. Here in Corinth, it would have been the temple of Aphrodite. Take it to the temple, and you give it to the priest at the temple, and they store it away from you. And little and little, you're saving, and you're saving. And you're saving. And on the day that you have finally met that market price, you take your master, the slave would take his master to the temple and would make a withdrawal. And the temple would pay the master and the slave would now be free. Free of that master, but not totally free. Now that Greek pagan slave was symbolically a slave, not to the temple, but to the God of that temple. You were bought with a price. A purchase uh, had taken place and liberated the slave, and now that slave was the slave of God. Paul says, you were bought with a price. Don't become slaves of men. In whatever condition each was called, now you remain with God. As in, where did such an idea, where did such an idea in the world come from? Where a slave could be freed and then belong and become a slave to the gods, Listen, this is really simple. Where did those ideas come from in the, in the ancient Near East, first century? You go back way, 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 way back to the beginning, right after the fall. Right, at, Where did such an idea come from? From the beginning when sacrifices were first made to the one true God back after the fall with Adam and Eve and their kids. And that just got passed down through the ages and ages and ages and got more and more perverted, more and more confused and mixed up. But there's the truth of it. It goes back to that. Where does such an idea become a reality? Paul says at the cross. When Jesus bought us at the greatest price, not some market price, but the eternal price of God's justice. At the cost of suffering, the eternal weight of our sins, freeing us from our bondage to sin. Our bondage to sexual immorality, our bondage to hate, our bondage to jealousy, our bondage to fear, our bondage to pride, freeing us to become slaves to our God, the only God, to remain with Him. There's the big question what will what will make you content? Paul is saying it is not marriage, it is not sex, it is not singleness, it is not your ethnicity, it is not your freedom. Those do not give you the contentment that you were looking for, because if those were taken away, you can still have contentment. Different people uh, who (laughs) need—the amazing thing here is that different people who need the same grace can have the same contentment, even though these people are so different from one another. And you look at this church, you look at people who are so different from one another, and yet we can have the same contentment because we need the same grace— because we need the same Savior. That this is the kind of place where people who are so different, where the married and the single can share in the same contentment together, where men and women can share in the same contentment together, where people of different ethnicities and different backgrounds can can share in the same contentment together. Old and young, rich and poor can share in the same contentment together in the church, with each other, with Jesus. And, and that just points up the sad, terrible, ridiculous irony of the church today. Not everywhere, but some of the church today trying to appropriate the world's agenda to bring about in the church what only Christ can bring about in the church. For contentment, like, what do you need to know to have contentment? To know that you matter? You do matter. You matter right now. What you do matters. Loving God, loving others, it matters. You matter to the only one whose opinion of you really matters. You matter to Jesus. And you will matter forever. And your name is written not in the annals of of, of humankind, the history of humankind. Your name is written in the book of life. And your name will live forever. And you will live forever in glory. What, to have contentment, what do you need to know? To know that you're loved? Like you are loved so deeply by the one who created you and watches over you and gave up everything to purchase you back to be with him. What, is this? what do you need to have contentment? To know that you're beautiful? You, each and every one of you is the image of God. And even though your body is weak and you, and you get sick and you will die, you will be raised up in such strength and in such beauty, there are not words in our language that can describe the awesomeness of the heavenly reality that you will be one day. It's all because of Jesus. Contentment. Uh, your, your, your present circumstances cannot touch this contentment because you have it all with Jesus. Regardless of your present circumstances. Charles Spurgeon, in with this, Charles Spurgeon who's a 19th century English preacher. He's visiting visiting someone in a very, very poor section of London uh, and he passes by a window. He knows this widow. Uh, He sees her uh, again. He's always passing by her, this poor old widow sitting in her apartment. It is a cold, cold winter's day and he hears her pray, the same prayer. She's always praying at her little table with her little chair, with her little single coal of fire, with her little itty-bitty piece of bread and she sits there and she prays, all this, and Jesus too? Loved ones, Jesus is the way to commitment that enables you and me to say the words that we confess this morning from Philippians 4, along with Paul, with Jesus. I know what it is to be in need. And I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. It is Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for nothing less than our Lord and Savior, who is truly everything to us. But it's, it's, it's easy for us to go this way or that way. Lord, we pray that you would bring us again together, everyone here again together uh, to, to that faith, to look upon Jesus, to know and looking upon Jesus, it's all good. Father, we thank you for our Lord, our Savior. We thank you for our brothers and sisters here as we point each other to him. We pray that you would also enable us with that grace to point others who don't know him yet back to our Lord and Savior that they might. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.